Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. It's been a busy few weeks in Welsh politics, so joining us to discuss the Welsh Government's programme for government and their newly updated plan for reforming our union. We have not only someone who shares with me the honour of having an ex in their surname, but also a fantastic journalist, Gareth Axendary of National Wales. Hello, Gareth. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming. We've also got uh, Kerry Davis. Evening, gents. And Richard Martin. Hello. So let's start with the programme for government. Gareth, do you think this is an ambitious plan for a government in their sixth term? <laughs> I think if Labour had known they were going to do as well as they did in the election, I think the, the manifesto potentially would have been a little bit more ambitious. I think they've surprised themselves in many respects, haven't they? And, and I don't think there's any surprises in the programme for government from what was in the manifesto, which I think was widely considered fairly safe beyond kind of a new national park and a national forest and which are you know have their own merits but that's kind of what labor politicians re-refer to when they're asked why is it radical it's not the most radical agenda ever is it but also it's 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 coming on the back of an unprecedented i hate that word but an unprecedented 18 months where really speaking their priority moving forward is is to ensure that, that the country recovers from from the pandemic Rich, it's uh, it's quite telling, isn't it? That you know, I think looking at it, the mention of to legislate on something is minimal. It's like two, it's like three or four mentions throughout the whole document. They say they're going to create legislation or something. Do you think that's indicative of, like Gareth said, a party that thought they may not do as well as they did, so they they've done a lot of stuff they could do through ministerial direction, or they left some gaps in the manifesto because they thought they'd have to maybe put some applied manifesto into their program of government too. I'd kind of throw that back a little bit, Matt, and I'd say, how different do you think this would have been actually if they knew they were going to be in government? Actually, I have a sneaking suspicion that they wouldn't have made any more promises than they've actually made, because when you go into an electoral campaign, if you are saying we're actually going to do this thing, you are going to really make part of your electorate really happy, but you're going to make a part of them quite unhappy at the same time. Now, that's just the way that politics works. So I don't think the character of this document would actually have been that much different, frankly, if they'd they'd written it ahead of time, you know, if if they'd written a manifesto from which this is derived ahead of the election, knowing that they were going to govern, I almost feel like they might have been more cautious. Because as we've talked on the pod before, uh, when we were fortunate to have Stephen Bush on, he made a very good observation, which has really stuck with me, is that the Welsh Labour Party has an incredibly astute ability to be in the middle ground politically. And that's not middle middle of the left-right political spectrum. It's basically the the median point on almost every issue. And as soon as you actually do something, you make a decision, then you move off that middle ground slightly in one way or another. So I'm not sure it would have been that much different. It isn't massively inspiring, but that's how you keep the majority of people on board. You know, if as we saw with Corbyn's uh, campaigning in 2017-2019, if you go too much one way or the other on a particular issue, or pick any issue across the whole portfolio spectrum, you lose voters. So what Welsh Gaber have done really cleverly is basically not promise too much, also not put off too many people. So I, I, I think it's a success. It's a successful document on the back of a successful election. Yeah, I, I'm going to surprise you here, and I, well, not surprised that you. I agree with Rich, but I do. I, I've gone through it, and it ticks a lot of the boxes I actually want from 
a more modern politics. It's not too big, I think. What I want the Welsh Government to be doing is to do a little bit less, but to do it things a lot, lot better. And I'm not sure if that's deliberate in what we've got, but I, I quite liked it. I think the link to the Future Generations Act and the 10 areas of well-being and framing it in that, I think that worked really well. It, it is an ambit. It hasn't got huge, big-ticket items, which people might want, but there are little things in there which to please people. You know, we've discussed UBI in there whether that's a good thing to have in there with the ability to do what they can do, I'm not sure. There's things about single-use plastics, which please me. So I think there's there's things in each area which will please campaigners in all of those subject matters. But there will be people who think they're not going far enough. And But as a starting point, I, I, I think a lot of people will be quite pleased with it. I don't think it was written in a way for a coalition. I think, as other people have said in the discussions, it's kind of an awful lot of it in there, if you are going to be critical, are kind of things that have been in last time, time before, maybe the time before that. There's a lot in there, isn't there, that is, we will continue to do this, we will maintain this. Let's go climate change then. Um, So talking about that absence of legislation, you know, when we were talking to uh, our guest on one of our our former pods, Gemma, I think, mentioned that the concern that there's a little bit of a lack of of stick with regards to the carrot and stick approach that Welsh government take with regards to their climate policy. Gareth, are you a little bit concerned that the absence of legislation raises concerns that a lot of this programme will be lacking in terms of non-compliance penalties or enforcement? Again, I think everything's underpinned by, by what they see as achievable within this four-year cycle. And for that reason, uh, sorry, five-year cycle. And for that reason, you know, with the underpinned by the fact that the kind of we're wanting to build back after this pandemic. Now, when you kind of predicate everything that's been said in that, I think the moves they've already made, like you know this, um, you know, cancelling road building projects, for example, they have moved quite quickly and quite early. Now, again, we can say that well, they'd already committed to not building the M4 relief road, and that's true. But you know, putting a, a complete kind of um, or shell, completely shelving things like that have shown that they, I think they're serious about certain things. But again, it's easier not to do stuff than do stuff, isn't it? And in many respects, that's what they're doing is they're, they're choosing to not do things. And that's almost their radical approach. The stick and the, the carrot kind of question is quite interesting. I think, again, that's one of the radical things that we could have seen, wasn't it? Is, is you know, more yeah, that that stick approach. Um, I think I don't want to go over all ground that I know you guys have covered in, in previous um, in, in previous episodes, but I don't think on the climate and environmentally that beyond saying what they're not going to do it is overly ambitious. But again, you know, it's what's within their gift and what they can do within within the current climate, really, to be honest. Yeah, coming back to, to recycle some earlier points, I think it's done enough to please um, environmental campaigners potentially to say, yeah, okay, it's okay. But it's not, you know, it's not got people waking up, even though Greta Thunberg occasionally reshares Welsh government ministers tweets now or, or their quotes. I don't think it's, you know, really getting the blood pumping of environmentalists. There's two pages worth of plans for climate change, but there's a couple of areas where there's not really a huge amount. Is there anything concerning perhaps about maybe the, the, the lack of plans in finance and local government to you? 
I was, just, I was literally having a look at uh, finance just as just as uh, Gareth was speaking then, and I thought that I saw the top line because you know we have a journalist on the on the pod right now. We've had journalists on the pod before, and you always think, well, what are you going to lead with? And what the Welsh government leads with in finance and local government is not take more in Welsh rates of income tax from Welsh families for at least as long as the economic impact of coronavirus lasts. That's what they lead with as their top economic policy. And I just think, well, I've rarely heard someone express it as simply and as well as Gareth just did, which is it's easier to not do something than it is to actually do something. And that's basically what, what this is. Before the election, we talked a lot about what can the Welsh government actually do? And a lot of the pre-election coverage of the Welsh Labour manifesto was, this is a manifesto that they can deliver on. Actually, it's quite surprising then when you look into the programme for government and you realise quite how little they can actually deliver on because they can seek to do something or they can explore something. But a lot of things they actually want to do, like explore and develop an effective tax planning and housing measures. Um, that could in, include land transaction tax to ensure the interests of people. I mean, without re asserting a right to do something or being some way in a position to actually do something, because we know that the ability for the Welsh Government to raise any kind of new tax is completely hamstrung by the whim of not the UK parliamentary body on a, a, as a whole, but by the whim of an individual minister who can just say... We're, you can't do that. And we've seen this with the most trivial tax of vacant land tax, which has been gummed up into a legislative competence order type process in Westminster for like four years now or something along those lines. And that's a tax on empty land that is not being developed on. It's, and it's so arbitrary and trivial and we're, we're kind of having all of these permutations still now about the devolution of air passenger duty which is such a tiny tax that would potentially bring in so little money and yet the Welsh government can't do it so is the fact that they don't talk much about tax in their program for government you know a problem yes is it probably representative of the fact that there's pretty much nothing that they can do apart from tweak the levels of income tax and you know land transaction tax can be nudged one way or the other that's also true. So is it disappointing? Yes. Is it surprising? No. Uh, is it probably realistic? Uh, yes, unfortunately it is. You know, they, they just can't do that much. And, and actually, as we will see more and more of the internal market type uh, legislation coming through from Westminster, potentially they can even do less as time goes on. So, or, or at least it's less clear what they can do, which is equally, you know, as much of a problem. So I, I can't say that I blame them uh, really in this particular regard uh, but I imagine there are probably a lot of people in the Labour Party and maybe you can comment on this Matt who would like to see more of that redistributive agenda there but maybe that passion is there from the left in a way that actually isn't reflected by the reality on the ground I, I don't know what do you think well Das Kapital is in the news uh, Labour's shadow chancellor has talked about how she's never read Das Kapital uh, and a lot of the tax plans here do sound like they've been created by people who've read more nudge textbooks than uh, Marxist texts. I think that's what it is. I think it, it, it's very indicative of not wanting to rock the boat. A lot of it is behavioural change uh, based taxation rather than revenue raising or redistributive tax. Uh, and I think it's indicative of the fact that Mark Drakeford at his core thinks that it's the UK that should redistribute money through taxation rather than Wales. And I think that's what this what this is evidence of. And I think that you can take it in that one way, which I think is probably the accurate way, i.e. that Mark 
doesn't really want to use these powers, even if he had them. And then the, the second, I think that the Welsh government and the party are still a little concerned about what the political fallback would be from having a extra couple of p on the pound in Welsh taxes. I still don't think they're as comfortable with devolution if it were to cost people more money on their pay packet. Um, although I think most people who listen to this would be perfectly fine with that if it was do doing some good. But I think they're still concerned that a lot of people wouldn't enjoy that extra taxation. So I think that is why there's not a huge amount of detail on taxes in this uh, programme for government. What else did I want to talk about? Oh, whilst we're in local government, Kerry, are you shocked there's no plan to uh, reorganise local government? They're not touching that Welsh third rail? Yeah, if we're looking at the big ticket items you could expect to be in there, it was local government reform. And I think there's a line in there about reforming how people are elected and shoring up local democracy. But I think the the tickets, which which I think we still need, is very much that local government reform, reducing the number of councillors, the number of local authorities. And that, that's not on the cards for the next five years in any meaningful way. I think the nearest we've got to it is uh, local authorities can set up municipal bus companies. So I'm sure a couple will join together on the transport side and, and look at that. But, uh, you know, just reminding myself on the climate change, you know, sorry to bring us back, but they have said that they're going to embed their response to climate change in everything we do. And, and that could be quite interesting because it is, these things are still quite siloed in Welsh government and the creation of the new ministry has brought a lot together, but it's, it's how a lot of these things work across portfolios and departments. Rich, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I was just actually going to say one of the interesting things about local government reform is that uh, actually some of the biggest reforms have actually been quite silent and out of the public eye. And I actually get the feeling the Welsh government, if you listen to Julie James and a couple of the others talking about this, you, you, you may be familiar with the concept of the C CJCs, which are these kind of essentially regionalism by stealth is what the Welsh government has been kind of trying to move towards more regional decision making and actually I, I get the impression that they're going to keep on pushing in that regard and try and make more uh, encourage local government to make more decisions on a regional basis through those CJCs but they don't necessarily want to make it a badge that they wear um, and because they know that you know local think of local government form as the third rail I think is a very very apt way of putting it frankly because they know how dangerous it is so I think that they'll continue their kind of existing policy of of trying to gently create the idea of regions without actually ever saying it so again I'm not surprised it's not in the program for government but it, I suspect it will run through an awful lot of the kind of subnational policy making that they make uh, I think we'll see more and more of this kind of stuff. Gareth, you must talk to uh, quite a few councillors in your day job. Have they ever come to you with some concerns about local government reorganisation? Probably more so when I was at the Caffili Observer, going back a year or so. But it's like Rich just said, you know, these things are kind of already happening, aren't they? One way of putting it, it's quite a good way of putting it, I guess, by Rich, is, is to say it's, you know, governance by stealth in many respects. But again, like Kerry said, it's it's... The big ticket items, the things that kind of a kind of shock and awe for those who are interested, that's not in the program for government. But like I said, it's kind of already happening. In terms of on the ground in 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 local council and stuff, I think there is an appetite there for that. Certainly from from within the Labour Party or from within Labour um, councillors, 
but again like i said it's kind of already happening and those decision makers understand and know that and it's also you know it's 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 happening beyond wales as well isn't it with kind of the southwest stuff with bristol and newport and cardiff and stuff these things are not new concepts they're not you know they 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 do already exist and i just think those yeah those for labor for for, for welsh labor probably now wasn't the time to kind of go for that that whole sweeping reform at a time when they're trying to reform everything else almost right up to a uk government level wonderful thing gareth that was brilliant it leads perfectly into what the welsh government have released recently also which is the new 2.0 reforming our union document your piece in the national this week gareth covered the newly updated proposals from the Welsh Government. Would you be okay with outlining some of the headlines from the report for our listeners? For those who know, knew or know what reforming our union one was, there wasn't a huge amount of surprises. For those who didn't and maybe are only taking an interest all of a sudden, it was kind of this groundbreaking document that was looking to, to kind of completely trample all over Boris Johnson, the UK government's turf. It all goes back to this this balance of power between the UK's four nations. So there's kind of, they're calling the, the basic principles, essentially look to see England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales come together to share links and resources, but be treated as equal parts, as opposed to everything starting in Westminster and emanating out from there. Um, beyond that, there's kind of the things... In the in the the language of the text, there's there's things like seeing devolution to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland as a permanent feature of the United Kingdom that cannot be undone. Now that's quite interesting because for many people in kind of political circles until very recently, they would have seen devolution as this journey that wasn't going to be undone. And maybe you know there are things that have spooked the the Welsh government doing, including things like that. But beyond that, it's it's things like you know, calling for more devolution over things like justice and policing. Again, nothing new. You know, this these relationships and intergovernmental relationships, which have been severely strained over the course of the pandemic. You know, we've heard them talk about that, you know, those rhythms of conversation between uh, Westminster and Cardiff Bay not kind of being regular enough. There's things like that in there. Um, but the interesting thing for me these proposals to have this constitutional commission in Wales, which is for all intents and purposes that they want to lead from the ground up to actually ask people in Wales what they want from the union. And that's interesting in itself. And it comes back to what we talked about earlier about, you know, what has been put in the manifesto that maybe was interested in potential coalitions or at least courting voters from other parties and taking far more interest in constitutional issues certainly played well for Labour in places like Caerphilly, where I'm sat now, where maybe there has been a slight increase in interest in independence, but you've got traditional Labour voters who've still returned to Labour. I mean, Heaven David's majority here almost trebled. Um, he was, you know, he's the incumbent for the first time, so you could almost expect to see that. But in a seat that Plaid Cymru really targeted, and in an election where they went really hard on having a referendum within their manifesto and and kind of breaking away from the United Kingdom, then Labour did really well. They did that by playing the soft nationalist card and not, I wouldn't say pandering to, to people who are indie curious, but certainly including stuff in what they were saying. And then now because they've included that in their manifesto and within the debates and stuff, they now have to act on that. Right. So, and that's, I think where, where this constitutional agenda of theirs 
has come to the fore and interestingly has come really early, isn't it? You know, we're only just over a month since the election and it's it's this constitutional stuff that's kind of grabbing the headlines um, and Mick Antony's taking, you know, a, a real central, you know, role on that in, in his you know, we talk about the climate ministry as being created, but obviously a new role of minister for constitutions a pretty interesting role as well. Again, it's not a surprise. And for those people who knew what was in the, the original reform in our union document, there's nothing hugely earth shattering. But it just shows, I think, the confidence as well of this Welsh Labour government to, to feel empowered by the election result, to feel like they can you know, stake a claim to have that conversation at a UK level. The question is, you know, will anyone listen to them? And I don't just mean that in Westminster, but I mean that in Scotland as well, where, yes, you've got a government where relations between Scotland and, and Wales are fairly good, but they are governments that want very different things. What has the response been from non-governmental Labour voices to this report, Gareth? I think... I mean, it varies, doesn't it? You've got, you've, as you know, Matt, it's a, it's a broad church Welsh Labour, even more so potentially than UK Labour in many respects. And we talked about earlier about them being in the centre ground of almost everything and being able to catch votes everywhere in Wales. And I literally mean everywhere. It's interesting. I mean, there's, for Welsh Labour, as far as, and I think the membership right through to the top, there's a discontent with the imbalance of power that Westminster has over what happens across the UK. And this isn't anything new. This has gone back over a hundred years when UK governments have constantly kind of returned conservative or conservative administrations in the UK government, even though the majority of people in Wales certainly not voting for, for conservatives and are on the whole, since Labour kind of took root in Wales, returning Labour majorities. That's the same in parliamentary elections as it is in Senate elections. So I think there's a discontent with how the union works within the Labour membership. Within that, then, it's interesting in kind of the pockets that exist. There are Labour people, maybe of older generations, who say, you know, just get on with the job and don't be messing around with this. Then you've got kind of the, the radical federalists, if you like, which obviously is where Mick Anthony comes from himself. I've already name-dropped Heaven David, but I'm going to do it again. Somebody who wants to see wide-sweeping reform to the, the union, and they believe that that comes about by having you know, devolved assemblies across England, more powers for Wales, a, a reformed voting system across the United Kingdom. And they believe that that's the solution to the kind of the constitutional ills of the United Kingdom. And you've got an increasing number of people in the Labour movement who actually are, if not indie curious now, then supporting of independence. You've got to take it with a pinch of salt, but we know that nearly half of independent supporters still voted for Labour. And that is another demographic that I think this document is looking to say, well, look, we are listening. We are willing to have this conversation, although a lot of what Mick Antony has said since he was, you know, became Minister for Constitution has reaffirmed his commitment to the union. Um, it might not be the union how it's working right now, but as far as he's concerned, uh, Wales is, is far better off within the United Kingdom. And that is something that a lot of people don't think is sustainable the longer that Westminster goes on not listening and the longer that England goes on returning conservative, conservative, well, overwhelmingly conservative governments, I guess, to, to Westminster. Talking about that Westminster Labour element, have you talked to any MPs about what they think about this plan? Yeah, so I've tried to kind of 
I've been wanting to speak to MPs and I've reached out to, to Labour Press uh, before before the weekend to kind of play into the quite a bit of a deep dive I did on the weekend. And I've not heard an awful lot back, in all honesty, um, which I think is interesting because, if anything, that's where Welsh Labour need to get support is from within the UK Parliamentary Party to say, look, this is the route forward. These are the guys who know how to win. These are the guys who know what to do. The issue that that you, I, I think this, I, I mean, the, the football currently is a perfect, um, resembles this perfectly. Keir Starmer is doing, a, I think, a stellar job of raising a pint and wearing an English football shirt at the moment. And they're finally starting to get that English nationalism thing. But that doesn't play well in Wales. And if you look at the work that Richard Wynne-Jones has done um, on Englishness and English identity, the overwhelming amount of English identifiers in Britain, in England mainly, they're not interested in kind of regional assemblies or regionalism across England. And even though, you know, people like Andy Burnham are coming more to the the front with with their talk um, about, you know, regional parliaments or regional assemblies, outside of those metropolitan big university cities is there support for that and that's the i think the big hurdle before they get boris johnson et al to listen to them the big hurdle is trying to get the uk labour party on side there's another national wales writer that we we speak to quite a bit which is theo davis lewis he started his column this weekend with quite a, a fiery line which was crusoe gumry where our most powerful leader has no power at all but fundamentally he's not completely wrong when the constitution's involved is he because the welsh government can't really implement any of this so why do you think they've released it do you agree with gareth is it just to try and placate indie supporting members and voters well i think there's a lot more to it than that i do agree with gareth in that i think uh, they're emboldened and the difference that we've seen between reforming our union one was that that was released to complete crickets. This time they've come out fighting. And the reason why they're doing that, I think, and I think this is why, I mean, there's a whole tapestry of interests here. I, I genuinely, I, I take Mick at his word that he genuinely believes in some kind of federal approach to the United Kingdom. And he does generally, genuinely believe that Wales's future should be within the United Kingdom. But... And this is kind of where I think it is interesting. The Welsh Government, as we've talked about earlier, doesn't make decisions happily. And it isn't making this big fuss about reforming the union voluntarily. You know, we had 15 years or so, you know, where Welsh Government really didn't want that much from the UK Government in terms of changing the settlement, famously turning down the devolution of policing and turning down the devolution of rail infrastructure and everything else in the past. But what has changed, especially recently under the Johnson administration, is that the UK government is now taking things back and stamping all over the devolution settlements, not just in Wales, but in Scotland as well. So the Welsh government now has a vested interest in actually making the case, not just to reinforce, and I think that's the language that they use in the programme for government, is kind of reinforce and create a stable devolution settlement, But actually, they want to be able to do stuff where there is clarity and ability to actually implement their own agenda, even if that agenda is relatively modest. Left untrammeled, the the Johnson administration or future administrations that are similar in mentality and approach will just steamroller 
Welsh governments in the future unless something is done about it because what was previously thought to be a reasonably agreeable defence in the Sewell Convention now means nothing because it's been completely bypassed not just once but several times by the UK government and it looks like it'll happen several times in the future. So if you are a Welsh government that genuinely wants to keep Wales within the United Kingdom and genuinely wants the United Kingdom to be a success but doesn't want to have all of your key policy planks enforced upon you by Conservative governments in Westminster, what choice do you have other than to come up with another way for the United Kingdom to work? So I do think it's really interesting. And I think they're doing a much better job of arguing the case than they did with Reforming Union 1. And this is particularly in light of Conservative attacks, not just by the Senate group, but by Conservative MPs in Westminster, about why is the Welsh government tinkering with the constitution in the face of COVID? And, and they're calling out the fact that the UK government is engaged in a massive constitutional redrawing exercise right now. And so they have to address these issues because the UK government is making a, uh, an absolute bull in a china shop um, where, where we have a very delicate constitutional structure. And it, you know, it is a hormone injected bull that is, uh, you know, rampaging around. So I, I understand why the Welsh Government is doing it. I think they are doing a better job. I actually think, and I think this is what Mick was alluding to today when he spoke to the Wales Governance Centre, I think that Welsh Government would be better off trying to bring people, more people into this rather than making it a Welsh Labour-only project. Uh, I think that would help give it more weight and increase engagement when they do this big intra-Wales consultation exercise later in the year. But we shall wait and see. I mean, there's there's a Rizzler paper, isn't there, between Welsh Labour's plan and Plaid Cymru's plan, really. There's, there's so little difference in terms of what Plaid Cymru view as independence, which is essentially confederalism and, and this Welsh Labour plan. It's what we've always talked about before, Rich, is their, their seeming inability to work together on matters of the constitution. Gareth, I'm assuming you've spoken to Mick Anthony. What has his reaction been when he's been told the Welsh government can't do any of this? They don't have the power to force any of it through. He's been asked numerous times. I asked him last week. Um, he was asked again on, I think, both Sunday Settlement and on with James Williams on, on television on BBC Wales on the weekend. And he goes back to talking about building this mandate of the people of Wales, right? That is literally all you can do. And, they, and, and like Rich said, they know that. You see that when I put this question to Simon Hart last week. Have you had any conversations with Welsh Labour? Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any kind of idea that maybe you'd be willing to listen and work together? And you just get these blank stares. And you got the same on Sunday when we saw Liz Truss talking about it and was asked about it. You just get this blank stare as if, well, why do we need to talk about the union? And that is a massive problem for anybody who's serious about reforming the union because I completely agree with Rich. Even though they might not have the, the power to really influence change, I think it's completely legitimate that they believe that this is the right thing to do and that the union isn't working and it does need reform. But, I mean, you know, how do you answer that question? He's obviously briefed. He's, he's, he's answered it the same way he answers it to, to every journalist that he's spoken to before and since me. When you say, you know, what happens when they... Because Laura McAllister said to me, you know, it's, it's a lovely plan, but what happens 
when you you have the people of Wales on your side, you have this commission that tells you what people in Wales want and what they see as the future. But then you take it to the UK government and they say, but you're three million and a bit people and we've got bigger fish to fry. There's no, there isn't an answer to that question because he's not going to turn around and go, well, after that, we're going to come out in support of independence because what the, the points that Mick's made that I think are really interesting, and really valuable are that he does acknowledge that post-independent vote Scotland, these conversations would have to happen. What's the relationship going to be within the United Kingdom? You're not going to build a wall down off or reconstruct off as dyke and just have this you know, weird no chat or whatever. You're going to have years and years of conversation and negotiations. These conversations after any sort of independence vote, whether that's in Scotland in 18 months time or in Wales in 20 years time, these conversations will have to happen. What Welsh Labour want to do is have them now. The UK government has no interest in having those conversations. Would a Cameron Osborne-esque government have entertained it a little bit better potentially? But I can't see a UK Conservative Party entertaining this, and, and Welsh Labour know that. But the the increasingly interesting point is what Welsh Labour is trying to do is at least get some sort of semblance of what people in Wales want to engage in when it comes to the Constitution. And that that's interesting because I think the big stumbling block that Plaid Cymru had by including referendum in their manifesto was loads of people I spoke to who are engaged and aren't engaged in Welsh politics, just turned around and went, well, what would an, you know, what would an independent Wales be like? You know, what, what would we do about currency? What would we do about our relationship with England? Would we rejoin the EU, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So why not have those conversations before you get anywhere near a, a referendum? Because Plaid Cymru stumbled over that. I think they put it in their manifesto and said that they'd set up this commission before that. But I think what in many respects, Welsh Labour are doing that, but they're playing the long game. And I'm not saying that they're going to include a referendum in any future manifestos, although they may. I think Welsh Labour believes that they can have the conversations now that would need to happen before and during and after any sort of referendum anyway. We saw what happened in Scotland in 2014 when it was, well, what are you going to do with the pound? What are you going to do with, you know, what are you going to do with the sterling? What are you going to do with oil in the North Sea? Who are you going to sell Scottish whiskey to, if not people in England, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You just got to have those conversations. I think Welsh Labour believes they can have them now. In many respects, I think Welsh Labour, that they won't admit this, but I think the Welsh government know that UK, the UK government won't listen, but that's not entirely their concern. I think they believe that having this conversation in Wales and, and kind of being seen as leading this conversation in Wales is both them doing the right thing, but them doing something that serves them. Because otherwise, if they don't, like Rich said, you allow, you know, Yes Cymru and independent supporters to completely dominate that debate. And when you lose, you know, your senior abolish voices in whatever cloak they wear, because they're no longer in the Senate and they're no longer on TV, you do then all of a sudden have a little bit of a vacuum that will be filled more so, I think, by the independence movement in the years to come. And if you don't, if you don't engage in those questions, then I think you've got an issue and the Labour would have an issue. And I think, interestingly, that's the issue the Welsh Conservatives are going to have if they've reached a ceiling of people who will consider voting for them and they just turn around and keep going, well, nothing's broken, so let's not fix it. When most people in Wales go, but it is broken. 
I don't think they're that concerned. Boris Johnson isn't going to ring Mick Anthony up tomorrow and say, Mick, you've created something amazing. I'm willing to listen because he's not going to. They know that. But it's about more than that, I think. It's about doing what they do domestically here in Wales. They wouldn't have introduced it this early with this much of a priority unless they thought it was an, an important thing to do or with a slightly more cynical hat on because it's a lot of talk and it engages people like us to talk about it when you're not actually kind of looking at maybe some of the other things they should be doing. But that's a, that's a different argument for a different day. The way that we should think about this is that this is, an, this is a hand-strengthening exercise on behalf of the Welsh Government. After Brexit, the Northern Ireland Assembly, or the Northern Ireland Executive, had a card to play in terms of negotiation. It didn't exist at that time, but the parties involved did, and they could play a powerful hand and influence the UK Government because of the situation in Northern Ireland. The Scottish Government had this you know, incredible, powerful hand of the independence card that they could play at any time that they liked, and they could get more concessions or at least respect out of the United Kingdom government. And we looked at the Welsh Government and we just, you know, what, what, what do they have? What do they, what leverage does the Welsh Government have? And the, the answer was basically nothing because the population of Wales had voted the same way the UK government, you know, the UK government at the time wanted them to. And there was no threat of secession or threat of change that they could bring to bear. So basically they had no voice. And actually, if the Welsh government maintains its engagement, maintains the you know, very slightly open door that it has to quite significant constitutional reform, and it is managing to keep almost everybody from status quo to independence on side with what it's doing, then what it can do in the long term is build up it's championing of a voice for the people of Wales. And the more that the Welsh government feels emboldened by having that popular mandate and popular support for its positions, and as long as it can kind of keep the salience of the issue up in Wales, and I, I, I don't think the Welsh government is entirely unhappy with the fact that there is so much support for independence within the Labour Party in Wales, because it gives them more leverage against Westminster government and it allows Mark Drakeford to then say even though he doesn't believe he doesn't want it to happen in any way shape or form it allows him to say publicly on the radio on the television to the press subscribe to the national uh, that the union is in you know that the biggest risk of the union is the way that Boris Johnson's government is doing it and that it needs reform and seen through the prism of trying to give themselves as much leverage as possible against the UK government from a very low starting point. I think this is exactly what you would expect. And this is the playbook that you'd expect them to follow. There would be future chapters in that playbook that I, I very much hope that they will follow. One would be speak to Scottish Labour. How have you managed to come this far without even getting buy-in from Scottish Labour? Because you've had buy-in from the SNP government in Scotland for much of the last five years. How can you not even sort that basic step out? And two, they actually have to deliver it. And what Mick has said over and over again is that an intra-Wales conversation is something that this Welsh Labour government can deliver. Okay, so they've set that bar for themselves. Now they've actually got to do it. And the, he's announced today about this expert panel and this consultation that's going to become be coming down the autumn and it has to actually happen and it actually has to be good and I think that that is a challenge and it's not going to be as easy as just saying you're going to do it and we saw this with the radical federalism papers that were produced last year before the election they were fairly light on detail and they prom you know they kind of promised that more detail would come and that that 
that tap has kind of been turned off now. <laughs> we had two pamphlets and there's been no more. So we actually need to see this stuff mobilized and operationalized and actually happen. Otherwise, if they lose this momentum, I think that they will start hemorrhaging the kind of engaged electorate that is championing and sees the cause for reform. I think they might start losing those two. I can as well, what was really interesting is today in his speech to, to the Wales Governor Centre, Mick Anthony was asked right at the very end about Yes Cymru. You know, Professor Dan Wincott had almost given him a way out. He'd said, you know, we, our time has come to an end and we've got questions about Yes Cymru still. And Mick Anthony seized on the opportunity to answer that question. And he said, Yes Cymru is inherently a good thing and that he encourages that debate and he encourages that, that conversation and that there's young people, our future generations, I think is how he put it, were having that debate, you know, that informed debate really about the kind of things that they can change in society. And I think Welsh Labour probably was spooked by the growth of yet the, the speed at which Yes Cymru grew initially and then realised that that simply doesn't translate as Plaid Cymru voters at the, the ballot box. And now we're more than comfortable having conversations with Yes Cymru and, and not everybody in Yes Cymru, because there are people in Yes Cymru who are absolutely cut them open and they are Plaid Cymru. But essentially, I think for the most part, Labour see Yes Cymru as, as what Yes Cymru essentially sell themselves as, which is this you know, a party political movement that Welsh Labour believe they can have a conversation with. But like Rich said, it's really important that, that they, they've essentially lit this match now. And they've kind of struck that match and they've they've got it and they're in control of it, etc. But there's always a risk of, you know, burning your fingers and, and kind of entertaining this conversation and these these kind of debates to the point where people become more informed and become more kind of engaged and are continually peed off by a UK conservative government and then eventually turn around and go, well, actually, Labour maybe independence is the right way forward all along, you know, in a way that kind of people have to many respects in Scotland. And I think it's in, it will be interesting now seeing what they do moving into the future because they're very comfortable having those conversations right now. They're very comfortable kind of creating these documents on it, you know, debating it, appearing in the press, talking about it. What happens when they produce this report, when the UK government inevitably goes, who are you not listening then what happens? That That's, I think, where it becomes really interesting. Kerry, you have described reforming our union as a bit of a shelf filler. Do you still agree with that? Do you think that's what this is destined to be? Just another Welsh government report that doesn't go anywhere? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you clarified there that it's the report I meant was the shelf filler, not the subject matter there, Mark. Of, of course, of course. That could have been a Twitter pile on there if anything is <laughs> going to do it in Wales. Yeah, it, it is. I think we've discussed this on a lot of pods about what's produced by Welsh government is often, you know, it's produced press release and then it's on the shelf. And I think this is another one of those. I think it's getting more airtime than the first one. But I think part of that is uh, to the credit of uh, the fast emerging wider Welsh media, which, uh, you know, Gareth is here representing tonight, but we've got Nation as well. And you've also got, uh, you know, what we're trying to do, I think there's a wider body talking about these things. But what Mick's come out with is grand, but I think the first thing that um, was mentioned earlier was about the Standing Commission to consider the constitutional future of Wales. I'll be really looking forward to see how that set up, the makeup of that, and how that then reports. 
had a little bit of experience with what we did with the Climate Change Commission for Wales a decade ago, and it, it got some really good people on board, some expertise, and produced some really kind of informative, groundbreaking suggestions and approaches at that time. And I'm hoping they'll go down that route and less so one of their second points, which is, you know, looking at the UK Labour Party Constitutional Commission. I think it's got to be that cross-party approach and get the views of what everyone in Wales is looking at. There's other stuff going on, Matt, at the moment. Uh, you know, you've got the McAllister review and uh, Heaven David recently commented on that and what the government should focus on. What was your takeaway from that? Uh, you know, a bit of a do what you can with what you have, where you are sort of approach for me. I think that the Welsh Government's focus on the Constitution has been reforming our union and that sort of rather existential question about the future of Wales. But they've had the McAllister review in their hands for years now and they haven't acted on it. And I think a lot of people assumed that if Labour formed a coalition with Plaid Cymru, that the recommendations of that review would be a condition of the coalition. But they don't need that coalition now. So it's now back to where it was before, which is this big internal discussion in the Welsh Labour Party about do we want more members of the Senev? If so, what electoral system do we want? And I don't think that if it's left to a majority Labour decision, that it would be SDV as recommended by that report. I think there's a lot of people who I'm hearing from now who think that what would be the inevitable conclusion of an internal Labour Party discussion would be like super de hunt, i.e. that there would be five regions with eight regional list MSs as opposed to four to get you slightly more MSs so, and, and take away the whole point of this, which is the proportionality. And again, I don't know whether Plaid Cymru would agree to that because they've so long wanted STV. Of course, you need 40 MSs to vote for this to make it happen. Maybe they take a calculated gamble that Although it's not proportional, it gets us more MSs, maybe it gets through. Maybe it's part of their nation-building agenda and they vote it through. I don't know, I've not spoken to enough of them. I've heard a few people talking about the idea of essentially an expanded list system to get the number of Senate members up. And I, I think, I mean, ultimately, I think that if that was, that was offered, I think that would be, you know, if that was proposed as a genuine proposition, I think that would be taken because you would inevitably invite, re-invite in the kind of toxic... UKP kind of people again there would inevitably be a percentage of those people that would get in but you'd also be likely to get uh, your first greens you probably have a few handful more Lib Dems but you know what is the problem that they're trying to solve there what is the more pressing problem that Senate reform solves is it that the Senate isn't proportional enough or is the bigger more pressing issue that there just aren't enough people in there doing the work and I think the second one is probably the bigger problem and I, I think I think you'd probably find a way to get that through but can I just circle back to something you said a minute ago Matt that I think is really interesting and that kind of ties into where the remainder of Mark Drakeford's term as first minister goes where his successor's term goes and also how it ties in with other parts of the UK we talked a bit earlier about the reforming our union and the kind of differences between the Senedd Labour Group and the parliamentary Labour Group in London. And I mentioned Scottish Labour earlier, and we, you know, there's the rise of the King in the North, Andy Burnham, you know, Sadiq Khan re-elected with a, you know, an enhanced mandate in London as well. How strange is it then that 
the Welsh Government has done all this thinking about the constitution of Wales, but not so much the constitution of the Labour Party. And we see all these weird internecine challenges within the Labour Party, primarily in England, about the future of the leadership. Is Starmer going to be there for the foreseeable? It certainly feels that he will be now. And Mitch, how... Mitch, you know, you know that Labour are back. Yeah, they're on the move or something. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, that's what I've heard. Sadly, Rich, no, they're coming home. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, coming home? it was coming home. Oh, of course it yeah. was. It's football. I forgot about the football. Yeah, because you know, you know, it's, the football's over now. Bells are out, isn't it? What, but where does it, where does the thinking about the future, not of the United Kingdom, but about the Labour Party? Go and you're, you know, you're kind of our point man on all matters Labour, Matt. What, what, what is this? How, how would you evaluate the health of the Labour Party across, well, I say across the United Kingdom, across Britain, the three Labour parties on Britain and the three Labour parties in Wales, I guess, the PLP and the Senate group and the local government group? And what plans, if any, what, where do you see the Labour Party evolving or federalising or not over this coming period? Well, in regards to the federalisation point, I mean, there are more and more branches and CLPs in Wales that are voting to federalise the party for an independent sister party that is Welsh Labour as opposed to being part of the UK Labour umbrella. But with regards to the overall health of the party, I mean, from where we are, it's pretty OK uh, in Wales. But in, in terms of Scotland, I mean, they they went backwards, didn't they? In, uh, in, in Scotland, in the Scottish Parliament elections, we... We, we, we held Batley and Spen, and I think that had George Galloway not stood, that would have been a much more comfortable margin of, of by-election hold than it, than it ended up being. I think you've got to factor in that the next general election we fought under very different boundaries, which take away some of Labour's natural advantage that they have. So I, I think that the prospect of, of, a U, of a Labour government at a UK level is, is, is still quite remote. Even under the existing seats that we have, we'd need a swing of 12% to get a majority of one. Yeah, is Jacob Rees-Mogg not he feeling the heat from the local uh, Labour Party yet? Well, in North East Somerset, I, I don't think so. Somehow. Well, it isn't, isn't what we're talking about here linked, you know, take that circle background, Rich. Uh, the Labour Party and the constitutional uh, discussions are, are linked together. You know, we didn't mention in the discussions about Scotland and Northern Ireland and that, that changes things dramatically as, as things emerge in those uh, administrative areas. You know, if Scotland goes, that changes the, the constitutional discussions in Wales and England. And, uh, you know, that should be part of our conversation as well. You know, when we're talking about constitutional changes in Wales, some of the top things Mick should be talking about are those areas that Scotland and Northern Ireland have long had, such as justice and policing and those kind of areas. And I know they feature, but they're still not really at the top of the, the point order. And that's what we really should be looking for straight away in this administration, is that kind of equality of devolution with the other administrations. We went, did, we had Mick on to talk about radical federalism, didn't we? We and did, we asked yeah. him this question, is how can you talk about radical reform of the UK when you can't reform your own party? And he was quite honest about it. As I remember, you know, he, he answered straight off the cuff. He was like, well, this is something that we need to do. And I think it's very difficult to see. That's why I asked about the Labour Party, because until you get buy-in, even with a Labour administration in Wales, as well as one in Westminster, you, you weren't seeing rapid progress because there was a lot of pushback and as a trail for future episodes of Hiraith when we publish our much 
much trailed uh, St David's Day episode, you'll hear more about this, how a lot of the resistance to some of the kind of proposals that Mick is making have come from within the Labour Party. And, you know, it, there's an inside game and an outside game. The Welsh Government needs to win the outside game of getting the public on board, but it needs to also win the inside game of getting the Labour Party on board. And that's not just the Senate group, that's the Scottish Labour Party, it's the Welsh Parliamentary Party. And everyone knows this, but they don't seem as willing to take on that internal party challenge as much as they are the public challenge. And, I, you know, you'd think that that would be an easier case to win, particularly as they're going to lose whatever happens. Labour is going to lose MPs when the next UK general election is going to come because we're losing seats. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just surprised that they don't show the appetite quite so much for that in, inside game in the Labour Party. It's a very long battle though, Rich, because, you know, you, you mentioned the King in the North, Andy Burnham. But in 2016, when he was Shadow Home Secretary, every possible amendment to the Wales Bill had to be approved by Andy Burnham. And he didn't want it. I mean, he backtracked after some severe pressure from Carwin Jones to admit that Labour's policy was to devolve policing to Wales. But in an interview a few weeks before that, sudden u-turn he said no no not at all that's not our policy at all i mean maybe andy burnham has completely changed his mind now he is himself running a devolved administration of some kind but it's i don't think a natural a natural desire for westminster politicians of uh, of the labor party to, to want to devolve power but does that not then suggest matt that they that they're happy to sit in westminster on, on opposition benches but I mean at a time when I mean how does a, a UK Labour Party win a general election okay politics can change quickly and the, the kind of the, the landscape can change quickly but why not go for or at least entertain the conversations of something more radical that you can sell to voters like that that does have kind of sometimes have cross-party consensus like electoral reform on a UK level. You know, it, why, why do you think that UK par, you know, Labour parliamentarians are not that keen on being worried about devolved stuff? Well, on the matter of electoral reform, of course, Gareth, the Labour Party at a UK level's policy position is to support first past the post. There is no desire to, to see a move to, to PR or STV in Westminster elections. That's but does but does thing. that does that make sense to you? I you know I'm I'm thankfully people will say not involved in the high level policy decision making of the Labour Party, but um, I, I mean I, I've always been in favour of a more proportional electoral system. But I don't know why UK Labour Welsh MPs, as we'll categorise them for this purpose, aren't in favour of more devolution. I mean, there's a fair argument to say that the less that is their responsibility the less they have to campaign on in purely electoral terms. They want, you know, policing is one where they want to keep that because it means they can, they can pop on their leaflets. A new Labour government will provide X amount of police officers, Bobby's on the beat. They, you know, it's, it's an easy campaign tool. So it's, it's stuff like that, I think, that, that, that dominate the, the decision-making of, of a lot of the Welsh Labour MPs. I have thought for a number of years that the first party that campaigns in England on the basis of an English parliament, creating an English parliament, is basically going to do incredibly well at the next election. And I, I've noticed 
in this last week alone, we've seen both the Guardian editorial talking about England for the first time, and also we've seen it on uh, in the Telegraph as well. And of all people, Nick Timothy is now campaigning, uh, apparently through the columns in the Telegraph, for an English Parliament. Now, I, I have a, a sneaking suspicion that it probably is too soon for that. But if the Conservatives needed an injection of support ahead of the next UK general election, with Boris Johnson having complete control or, or kind of really catalyzed the idea of Englishness for, you know, dressed in a Union Jack, but catalyzed the idea of Englishness for the Brexit referendum, I think that if they, if they lit that touch paper, borrowing the analogy from whoever said it earlier, I actually think that that would be a massive electoral win. And the people who've been sat on this, and I've just remembered when we last talked about this, for a century are the Lib Dems. And even now, a century later, they still haven't campaigned on that at a UK general election. But I do think that the first party that does it will really benefit from that. They'll get a because 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 people in England have been overlooked for so long. I think that that's, that's a, an interesting electoral asset or proposal in somebody's back pocket right now. And I, if, if and when it ever gets played, I think it'd be really interesting. I, I would probably say, certainly having spoken as we have with John Denham and others, you, you could imagine that if the Labour Party played that, they would be able to re-imagine what Englishness is um, and they'd be able to define it on their own terms. But I think the more likely suspicion is that it will be either a sort of UKIPy conservative flavour that would play that in you know, a kind of player that would play that card, and they would define Englishness. And I think it would be it would be one of those types of Englishness is a lot more palatable to be a future co-partner of Wales and under a Welsh Labour government than the other. And I think again, you know, I think it was Gareth that mentioned earlier that an awful lot of this stuff is potentially the kind of conversations we have in Wales are triggered by external factors and whatever you know happens in the future of England is going to be very influential on what happens in the future of Wales um, and I think it's really you know I just think it's really interesting I think for the first time we're seeing that idea of Englishness as a political concept really coming to the fore in a way that we haven't for uh, an awfully long time and kudos to anybody who's raising it and or spending months if not years writing books on it. It's very interesting, the English Parliament thing. I think that there's a danger. It can be played as, well, of course, people want more politicians. Um, I think that that is one certain danger for it. I think it would have to come as part of a huge, wide reform of the House of Lords, make Westminster smaller, et cetera, et cetera, to make it work. But I also think that if there is a fully-fledged English Parliament with all the powers of the Scottish Parliament, you can count the days for the rest of the UK because you've already seen how much attention Westminster gets from all UK media because most UK media is London-based, England-based. If the big decisions that affected the day-to-day -day lives of 60-odd million people were taken in an English parliament as opposed to the UK parliament acting as a de facto English parliament, then all the attention would go completely away from Westminster and the idea of a UK and go straight to England every day. If there was an English parliament, I think, yeah, you're counting down the days. And people say this thing about more politicians not being popular. And I've, I've always thought that what people always really feel is 
more bad politicians isn't popular, but more good politicians is popular. And I think we've seen that in the last Senate election where, you know, irrespective of whatever your political flavor of choice is, I think what we've managed to do is raise the bar. If you look at the people who've come in and the people who've left, we've got more good politicians in the Senate now than we had just a few months ago. And I think most people are quite happy about that. I'd also say that the party, the, the major party that complains the most about more politicians has created more politicians through police and crime commissioners, metro mayors, across the island of Britain over the last decade than any other party has. And I think that that is, tells its own story, really. I don't, you know, that argument about more politicians is, is a castle built on sand or sand castle, as some people might call it. Um, it's, 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 it's a mirage, it's complete fake. And I, I, the case can be made, of course it can, but it has to be made with confidence. And I think it's not beyond the wit of human to be able to do that. On that wonderful, shining, <laughs> pro-politician <laughs> note from Richard Martin there, uh, I think we'll wrap up. But um, I just want to say thanks to, to Gareth Axendary for, for joining us today. Gareth, if people want to find you and hear what you've got to say on Twitter, where can they go? They can go to Twitter. No, they can. It's, uh, <laughs> the issue with people asking me how to find me is I've got to spell my surname. Um, but I know no, that pain. I know exactly, that pain. Mate, exactly. No, just G Axendary is what I'm on on Twitter. But more importantly than that, you know, get behind what we're trying to do with the National. It's a bit of a plug. But um, I've not slept for a long time now, kind of putting this new news organization together. And it's great being able to kind of come and talk about stuff and, and, and also kind of cross-pollinate between what we're doing and what you guys are doing. Because I think Wales benefits from that, doesn't it? That's the most important thing. You know, when you have different, you have plurality. For so long, we've not had plurality. Um, so the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. There's, there's plenty of space for everyone. It's like, where would you build housing? Well, there's loads of space. You know, where would you build new, new where would you, not, not controversial at all, where would you build new kind of media organisations in Wales? There's, there's loads of space. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the final thing I'd say is just get behind kind of these, these new media organisations in Wales. Thank you very much, Gareth. Uh, Rich, what about you? Yeah, same old, same old at Mimosa Cymru on uh, Twitter. Mr Davis? Um, to avoid the pylon you nearly suggested for me, Matt, I'm, I'm not giving my Twitter account out today. And Kerry is at Kerry the Viking on Twitter. And you can find me at Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R-101. And if you want to find out more from Here I, please go to Medium and find us at Here I Blog Cymru, at Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. After recording, we heard the sad news of the passing of Lord Elastan Morgan. The former Labour MP and member of the House of Lords was a dedicated advocate for self-determination for Wales. His campaigning paved the way for our Senedd and the Wales we have today. He will be sorely missed by many. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.